Disney's Episode 3, Maleficent. Welcome to Disney's, a podcast for Disney fans. I am your host, Christopher. And if you heard the last episode of the podcast, I covered my favorite animated movie of all time, Sleeping Beauty. And so I thought it only fitting to follow that up by talking about this uh, remake slash reimagining slash spinoff, like take your pick as to what you want to call it. I'm talking about Maleficent, uh, the movie from 2014 starring Angelina Jolie as Maleficent. And I I remember when I first heard about this movie, and I was very, very, very intrigued. Very intrigued because Angelina Jolie, I just feel like she's perfect casting. I feel fairly confident that had someone asked me prior to this announcement, you know, if you could choose someone to play a live action Maleficent, who would you choose? I feel like Angelina Jolie would have been my first pick. She's just absolutely perfect casting. I thought so then. I still think so. And yeah, but the thing about this movie though, is that I have seen a lot of people online who really, really hate it, who just cannot stand this movie because they feel like they ruined this character, that they softened her too much, they made her too much of a hero and not enough of a villain. I've even seen some people go as far as to say that she's not a villain at all in this movie, which I completely, totally, 100% disagree with. Uh, But yeah, and you know, the thing that I find really perplexing is that some of the same people that I've seen say that they hated this movie because of how softened Maleficent was loved Emma Stone's Cruella movie. And I even saw them say things like, you know, unlike Maleficent, I love how this kept Cruella a villain. And I'm like, what? (laughs) You clearly watched a totally different movie than I did because Cruella is far less a villain in that movie than Maleficent is here. Far less. I don't understand that. Like, she literally does nothing wrong in that movie. You take Maleficent and... The thing that makes Maleficent Maleficent, the thing that makes her who she is, the thing that we remember her most for, what makes her a villain is her cursing Aurora. That is probably the most iconic scene of Sleeping Beauty when she shows up at the christening and curses Aurora. That is what Maleficent is known for. You know, like, I feel like most villains have their thing, you know, like... The Evil Queen is remembered for poisoning Snow White with an apple. Maleficent is remembered for cursing Aurora at the christening. Uh, You have Cruella, who's remembered for having puppies kidnapped, you know, to have them skinned for fur. And Cruella doesn't do that. (laughs) You know, like the thing that makes Cruella Cruella doesn't happen. And I get that it's a prequel, that it's supposed to lead us up to 101 Dalmatians, but... I still don't get the sense that that Cruella that we know from the animated movie is ever going to come to be, especially given how Cruella ends. And I don't want to go into that because that's not the purpose of this episode. But, you know, I just feel like that version of the character is not evil. 
and even seems to like dogs as opposed to hate them and want them dead for fur. Like, you know, again, the whole thing that makes Cruella Cruella is her obsession with fur and doing anything to get it, including killing dogs. The thing that makes Maleficent Maleficent is her cursing Aurora, and that still happens. And no matter how you look at it, that's an evil thing to do. Cursing an innocent child, an innocent baby, to essentially die on her 16th birthday is evil, regardless of your reasons. So, yeah, I do not agree at all that she's not a villain at all in this movie. I totally think she is. The difference is what happens after the christening. But I will get into all of that. I will discuss all of that in this episode. So, you know, and one more thing that I want to say before I really start talking about this movie is that it's not really truly the other side of the story because there are so many differences between this and Sleeping Beauty. I will get into those differences later, but there are so many that I remember even being very surprised by that when I saw the movie uh, because... I had honestly been expecting something that was going to be more or less a prequel slash tie-in to Sleeping Beauty, like something that was still taking place in the same universe, but from Maleficent's perspective so that we could better understand her motivation. And that's not at all what this is. (laughs) So, in fact, I remember being really, really worried because I didn't want to have to see her die because I figured for sure, well, she dies in Sleeping Beauty, she has to die here. Because I thought this was supposed to be like a prequel slash tie-in, and it's not. So, I mean, whenever I see people describe this movie as basically being Sleeping Beauty, but from the villain's perspective, I'm just like, no, it's not. That's not what this movie is. It's a complete reimagining. And these are essentially two very different characters in two very different universes. So, you know, you can't really watch this movie as a tie-in to Sleeping Beauty. It does not take place in the same universe. It can't. It just simply can't. And again, I will get into all of the reasons why. But before I do that, or anything else for that matter, I've got a little bit of Disney news for you. Okay, first up is something personal, probably doesn't even really count as Disney news, but it's an update. I saw uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. It was okay. I mean, I wasn't blown away, but I also didn't hate it. It was a movie. (laughs) Uh, One thing I will say about it. A, if you're somebody who's been watching Marvel movies for a long while and you kind of know what to expect at this point, definitely, definitely, definitely stick around for the bonus scenes because they are really exciting, especially the second one. (laughs) the one that you see after the credits. But also, I do like that it's finally, finally, seemingly starting to set something up. You know, like you take Spider-Man No Way Home, for example, which was brilliant. Amazing movie. I loved it. Uh, And then we all thought, at least I think it's safe to assume that we all thought, that Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was going to be a follow-up to that. You know, that... The multiverse was going to be a problem in that movie because of, like, ripple effects left over from the spell from No Way Home. I think a lot of us thought that, and that's not at all what it was. It was something completely unrelated. It had nothing to do with anything that happened in No Way Home. So, 
it's like, okay, well, this is supposed to be the multiverse saga. You're supposed to be building on something here, and you're not. This all feels so disjointed. And then a lot of the movies have had bonus scenes that you're left wondering, what did I just watch? What just happened? You know, what does that have to do with anything? And it's almost never something that's resolved in the next MCU movie. Whereas back in like, you know, the first saga, back in like the early phases, movies would frequently have bonus scenes that gave you a clue as to what was to come in the next movie. You know, it was building something. It was very slowly building towards something. But this saga, the multiverse saga, really has not been doing that very effectively so far, in my opinion. Because even the various multiverse stories that we've had, like What If, Loki, uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, they don't have anything to do with each other. This is really the first movie that I've seen from the MCU in a while where it does feel like they're finally starting to build something. But yeah, the movie itself, though, I mean, a lot of humor, very funny. I've kind of come to expect that from Ant-Man movies. But in a way, I also kind of didn't like that because it didn't feel like this was the right movie for Kang. You know, like it just he felt very out of place in this movie. So, yeah. But yeah, like I said, it was all right. It was entertaining, but it wasn't mind blowing. And then what I have for you is an article from Forbes, and the headline says, Disney reveals how it plans to put a new spin on its Spider-Man ride. And I'm not going to read this entire article to you, but I will link it in the show notes if you do want to read it. I'll just read, you know, maybe two, three paragraphs here. Disney has revealed that it plans to give more muscle to its Spider-Man theme park attraction by developing new interactive merchandise based on future films featuring the Web Slinger, as well as possibly inserting new scenes to keep the ride current. The Spider-Man ride is the star attraction of the Avengers Campus Lands at Disneyland Paris and the Disneyland Resort in California. It gives guests the impression they are in Spidey's shoes as they sit in ride vehicles and appear to shoot webs at 3D screens in front of them by flicking their wrists. It is thanks to some technical wizardry, including four infrared cameras which are hidden in the ceiling of the ride car and track the position of the guest's eyes, shoulders, elbows, and wrists 60 times per second. In an all-new story written specifically for the ride, the webhead unveils an army of tiny spider bots which go rogue so the guests have to round them up. They then don a pair of 3D glasses and step into the ride cars which each seat four people. The slow moving vehicles stop in front of a series of 3D screens which are so high resolution they are indistinguishable from the walls they are set into. So it goes on to kind of further describe, you know, the changes that are being made and whatnot. Like I said, I will link this in the show notes for you to read, but very, very, very cool. Like, it makes me really, really want to get on this ride. But Maleficent, yeah, uh, so this was released on May 28th, 2014, written by Linda Wolverton and directed by Robert Stromberg. And our main stars here, we have Angelina Jolie, of course, as Maleficent, Charlotte Copley as Stefan, Al Fanning as Aurora, Sam Riley as Diaval, Amelda Staunton as Notgrass, Juno Temple as Thistlewit, Leslie Manville as Flittle, and Brenton Twaits as Philip. And music by James Newton Howard, with of course Once Upon a Dream, which we hear in the end credits by Lana Del Rey, written by Sammy Fain, Jack Lawrence, and of course Tchaikovsky. So, brief synopsis of this movie, a story of betrayal, revenge, redemption, and love. 
Maleficent is a dark fantasy adventure film that reimagines the story of Walt Disney's Sleeping Beauty from the perspective of the character Maleficent, a powerful fairy living in a magical realm called the Moors. The film follows Maleficent and explores her early life and the events that led to her enacting her iconic curse on the Princess Aurora. So, as always, before I dive into the movie itself, I want to give you some cool trivia about this movie. Angelina Jolie underwent four hours of makeup each day to transform into the character. The process involved applying prosthetic cheekbones, a nose piece, and false teeth. Sounds like quite a job, because, like, I've seen so many interviews with actors who have had to undergo a whole bunch of makeup for a role and they've talked about how exhausting it was like i think one recent example is i watched a documentary about the making of the it miniseries from 1990 and tim curry was talking about how exhaustive that that makeup was so 4 hours every day i can't even imagine sitting there for that long <laughs> but uh Speaking of her makeup, though, her raised, sharp cheekbones were actually inspired by Lady Gaga's look from her Born This Way era. And yeah, if you go back and look at pictures of Lady Gaga from that era, you will see that she has very similarly raised cheekbones. And that was actually, you know, that went on to inspire Maleficent's look from this movie. And Angelina Jolie has said that the scene in which Maleficent awakens to discover that Stefan has taken her wings is, quote, the most vulnerable scene she's ever done. And in my opinion, it's one of the greatest scenes from the movie, if not the greatest. And it's also phenomenal acting from Angelina Jolie. I've seen Angelina Jolie in a lot of movies, and I think that that might be the best scene, like her best scene. It's just so brilliantly done. And her horns were inspired by the African kudu antelope, which has long and twisted horns. And speaking of her horns, Angelina Jolie wore several headpieces with different weights. One headpiece was so heavy that Angelina would have neck pains right after and therefore was not appropriate for her more physically intensive scenes, such as her fight and battle scenes. So, yeah, like I said... I mean, that makeup alone had to have been very exhausting. And then on top of that, you're wearing a very heavy thing on your head. And yeah, it sounds grueling. <laughs> uh, on the second day of the Disney D23 Expo at the Anaheim Convention Center, Saturday, August 10th, 2013, Angelina Jolie admitted that she scared little kids while in costume on the set of Maleficent, with one kid actually saying, Mommy, please get the mean witch to stop talking to me. She adds that her daughter, Vivian Jolie Pitt, who played young Aurora, was the only child who was not scared of her. And I do want to kind of further clarify that because we do get multiple young Auroras throughout the movie. There are several of them because we see her in like different, like at different ages. But I think that the one that is her daughter, I think the one that is Vivian Jolie Pitt is the one that runs up to her in the forest and uh, Maleficent says, you know, like, go away. I don't like children. And then little Aurora basically demands that she be picked up. And so Maleficent picks her up and then Aurora kind of plays with her horns a little bit. I'm pretty sure that's the scene that her daughter's in. It was actually Angelina Jolie herself who picked Lana Del Rey to sing Once Upon a Dream for the end credits. And I'm so glad that she did because I'm a big Lana Del Rey fan, but I also just feel like nobody else really could have done that better. Like, I think that they picked the perfect person to do that song, especially that version of it, because 
it's kind of like, I don't know if it's put into a minor key. That would be my guess, but it's much darker than the version that's heard in Sleeping Beauty. And it's more eerie and it's just so well done. And yeah, I don't think that anyone else could have done it justice the way that Lana Del Rey does. So yeah, good choice. The movie's budget is estimated to have been around $180 million, making it one of the most expensive movies ever made. It was a huge box office success, grossing over $750 million worldwide, but it was met with mixed reviews, with many critics praising Angelina Jolie's performance but criticizing the plot. And a lot of these facts come from IMDb, and so if you want to look at more of them, because there are tons, like I did not pick out all of them (laughs) because there are too many. Uh, If you want to look at more of them, I will link that in the show notes for you. But actually, talking about the movie now, uh, yeah, in the very, very opening of the movie, the opening narration, we get a narrator, just like in Sleeping Beauty, except here, (laughs) there's a little bit of a twist at the end as to who the narrator is. And this also doesn't open up on a storybook like Sleeping Beauty does and like a lot of old animated Disney movies do. Uh But yeah, the narrator says, Let us tell an old story anew, and we will see how well you know it. Once upon a time, there were two kingdoms that were the worst of neighbors. So vast was the discord between them that it was said that only a great hero or a terrible villain might bring them together. In one kingdom lived folk like you and me, with a vain and greedy king to rule over them. They were forever discontent and envious of the wealth and beauty of their neighbors. For in the other kingdom, the Moors, lived every manner of strange and wonderful creature, and they needed neither king nor queen but trusted in one another. And uh, just as a side note, given how this movie ends, that's a little odd, but (laughs) we'll talk about that later. Uh, Returning to the narration, And a great tree on a great cliff in the Moors lived one such spirit. You might take her for a girl, but she was not just any girl. She was a fairy, and her name was Maleficent. So, like Sleeping Beauty, the narrator will actually come in fairly frequently throughout the movie. Uh, So, this is just kind of like the opening here, you know? But uh, Maleficent, we see her pretty early on that she seems to have some sort of healing powers because she sees that a tree branch has been broken and she uses magic to repair it. So she seems to have healing powers, and I think that we will see that again in the movie. And there actually is a novelization of this movie. Um, It's written by Elizabeth Rudnick, and it gives a little bit more background information about Maleficent's childhood and her parents. And according to that book, her parents' names were Hermes and Lysander. And people who have read Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream will very likely appreciate that little tie-in and what that's trying to imply there. Uh, But, you know, that establishes that her parents were killed by humans. And I do wish that there were more development around that in the movie, because we get very, very, very little. Almost nothing. Like, when Maleficent and Stefan meet as children, Stefan very quickly, you know, kind of offhandedly says that his parents are dead, and Maleficent says, so are mine, and that's the end of it. (laughs) We never get any information about that. This novelization that I'm talking about does give a little bit of that background story, but still not a lot. And also, I don't know if Disney considers that novel to be canon. But another question that I have, though, is why would someone name their kid Maleficent unless they were evil? 
Like, it's a beautiful name. I love the way that name sounds. I love the way that it rolls off your tongue when you say it. It's just beautiful. But it literally means evil, though. Like, why would you name your kid that? <laughs> uh, but I do love the Moors. Like, I really wish... Watching this movie really, really makes me wish that the Moors were real and that I could actually visit them because they seem like such a happy place, at least before Maleficent kind of rules over it, you know, making it more of a dark place. But prior to that, it seems like a very happy place. And this movie is very visually beautiful, especially when we are in the Moors. And there's one scene in particular that I think is just absolutely gorgeous. But I don't want to give away just yet what scene I'm talking about, but if you've seen the movie before, you probably know exactly what scene I'm referring to. We soon after, you know, meet the three, quote, good fairies from Sleeping Beauty, but for some reason their names have been changed. I don't understand why that was necessary. So instead of Flora, Fauna, and Merryweather, we get Knotgrass, Flittle, and Thistlewit. And not only do I not understand why the names were changed, but if you're going to change them, why change them to such stupid names? <laughs> but our first introduction to them is not Grass and Flittle arguing over something incredibly trivial and stupid, which definitely tracks because they are basically the equivalents of Flora and Merryweather. And yeah, that tracks. You watch Sleeping Beauty and those two especially are arguing all the time. In fact, they're the two fairies who get into that disagreement about what color Aurora's dress should be. So should it be pink or blue? So uh, yeah, but Notgrass does say, humans here, I hope there's not another war. And this is interesting because I feel like maybe this line is in here because it's meant to be kind of a clue as to what happened to Maleficent's parents. But, you know, I still feel like I would have appreciated more than that. <laughs> uh, but just before Maleficent meets Stefan, she tells him, it's not right to steal, but we don't kill people for it. And one thing that I really noticed on this watch of the movie, because this is probably, I don't even know, I've seen this movie a lot of times. I don't know how many. Uh, I'm not going to try to guess. But <laughs> on this rewatch, I noticed a lot of foreshadowing that I did not notice before. And this is one of them. You know, because what is Stefan doing here? Why do he and Maleficent meet? Well, because he's stealing something. And that's what ends up causing the whole conflict is that he steals her wings. And so, uh, you know, and it also kind of foreshadows the ending because she says it's not right to steal, but we don't kill people for it. And, you know, I'm getting way ahead of the discussion here, but at the very end of the movie, Maleficent has the opportunity to kill Stefan and she doesn't. So definitely foreshadowing, but the actor playing young Stefan here, his name is Michael Higgins. And I do have to say brilliant casting here because he does actually look a lot like a young Charlotte O'Copley, really, really great casting there. Uh, so the narrator, you know, after Maleficent and Stefan spend some time together and, uh, Stefan throws his, uh, ring because it's iron and it burns Maleficent when he touches her hand. Uh, Maleficent is moved by this, and the narrator tells us, Thus did the young thief who had hoped to steal a jewel steal something far more precious. Once again, more foreshadowing. Because this is referring to her heart, but it's also foreshadowing her wings. So, really great, you know, foreshadowing there. We soon after see a montage of Maleficent and Stefan playing together. We see Maleficent petting an animal. 
And this was another thing that I noticed on this watch that I don't think I really noticed much before, which is that later in the movie, she will watch Aurora petting a fawn. And I think that like when she sees that, one of the reasons why she feels a pull toward Aurora is that Aurora reminds her of herself when she was young. Their friendship, of course, eventually blossoms into something more. Stefan kisses her on her 16th birthday. And in this universe, this is why Maleficent curses Aurora in such a way. You know, I talked in my Sleeping Beauty episode about how Sleeping Beauty's uh, premise of Maleficent cursing Aurora you know, at this christening actually was perfect, you know, that it was a fitting punishment given what was going on. And here it's also fitting, even though it's a totally different reason. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the narrator tells us that uh, after some time they grew apart because Stefan felt more and more drawn to the greed of humanity. And it's really sad because we see Maleficent doing basically everything alone. She seems so terribly lonely and that just leaves me to wonder like you know she hasn't had her heart broken yet like she hasn't had her wings stolen from her yet she hasn't taken that dark turn yet so why is everybody staying away from her why doesn't she have the companionship that she seemed to have as a child like it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me but you know yeah but you know the current king uh we're told that his name is king henry i obviously hate this king and I think that he might be intended to be social commentary on politicians who don't care about the environment and they instead do things to destroy it. And not just politicians, but humanity in general. And I feel like the sequel to this movie, Maleficent Mistress of Evil, really goes hard with that. Like really, really goes hard with that commentary, with that metaphor. But, uh, you know, one thing that I will say, though, about King Henry, it's probably the only positive thing that I can possibly say about him is that the whole reason that he gets injured and eventually dies is that he's out there with his soldiers fighting alongside them. He's basically acting as like a general or a commander or something like that. Like he's leading his soldiers into battle. And I feel like normally when you see like kings in shows and movies that are sending their soldiers off to war, they stay safe and sound and comfy on their throne. They don't go out and fight with them. But this one does, so I do have to give him credit for that at least. But this battle scene is so cool. You know, we get this battle scene between Maleficent and the army that she raises. You know, so we get like tree people and, you know, just really, really cool uh, fairy tale beings and creatures fighting alongside her. And it's really, really cool. And, you know, one thing that I will say about this movie, I mean, I have a lot of good things to say about this movie because I really love it. But one of those things is that the fight scenes and the battle scenes, I think, are really, really well done. And uh, I don't want to give away as to why, but this scene does remind me a lot of Serena Valentino's novel, Mistress of All Evil, because there's one particular aspect of the scene. I'll just say that it's the tree people <laughs> that really reminds me of that novel. But again, I don't want to go into any more detail as to why, because I don't want to give too much of that book away. I do definitely recommend that you read it. But, uh, you know, speaking of the tree people, though, we see some of them riding like porcine creatures, like they're basically like these big, large pigs. And I think that this is meant to be a reference to Maleficent's goons in Sleeping Beauty, because 
most of her goons in that movie, I don't think all of them are. Definitely not all of them, but a good amount of them are pig-like creatures. So I think that's meant to be a reference to that. And also possibly a way of saying that that's where Maleficent got her goons in Sleeping Beauty was that they were more creatures. I think that's possibly what they're trying to hint at. But, you know, we once again see Maleficent heal, although this time she's healing herself because we see her get burned when King Henry pushes her away. He's wearing an iron gauntlet, and so the gauntlet touches her skin and she gets burned, but the burn very quickly fades. So it seems like she's able to heal herself. But King Henry gets injured, uh, and that injury ends up killing him. And uh, he's in his bedroom, presumably, in bed, and he's got, like, a group of men around him. I'm assuming they're, like, his top soldiers or something. But, you know, he, uh, he tells them that he will choose a successor to take the throne and care for his daughter. And that tells us that he is Aurora's grandfather. And uh, he implies that whoever avenges his soon-to-be death will take his place. And so this is what gives Stefan the idea to meet back up with Maleficent and steal her wings. Although, initially, I think his plan was to kill her. Not to steal her wings, but to actually kill her. Because he first tries to stab her with like what looks like a dagger. He's unable to do it. So then he takes her wings. Uh, and this scene is so harrowing. It's so difficult to watch. It's the scene that I mentioned a little while ago. The scene that Angelina Jolie said was the most vulnerable scene that she's ever performed, you know, and it's a scene that I've seen a lot of people interpret as rape allegory since Stefan first drugs her before taking her wings. And uh, yeah, I can definitely see that. And that might be one of the reasons why it's so hard to watch is because Maleficent wakes up realizing that something precious has been stolen from her. So yeah. And she's horrified and her acting here, Angelina Jolie's acting here, is so phenomenal. I mean, like I said, very, very difficult to watch, very harrowing. The way that she screams when she realizes that her wings are gone, it's just so harrowing. We then see uh, Stefan bring the wings to the king, to King Henry. And, you know, of course, he wants the king to believe that he has killed Maleficent, when in reality he's only taken her wings. But... You know, I think that that's meant to show us a little bit of humanity in Stefan, that he's not pure evil, at least not yet, because he could have killed her, but instead he took her wings because he didn't have the heart to kill her. And I get that, but at the same time, like, we see how she reacts to that. It's almost as if she has died. It's still pretty rotten. It's still really, really bad. And... We also see him become more and more unhinged, more and more evil as the movie progresses. I'll get into that. But what I want to talk about here, though, is that, interestingly, I mentioned a novelization of the movie earlier uh, by Elizabeth Rudnick. And in the novelization, the scene where Stefan brings the wings to Henry and Henry says, you will be rewarded, is longer than it is in the movie. Because in the novel, you know, Stefan says, well, he says this in the movie, too. He says something to the effect of, you know, I shall do my best to, you know, be a worthy successor to you or something to that effect. And the scene cuts off there, goes to the next scene. In the novel, the king is like, you know, what do you mean? Successor to me? I didn't say that. I said you would be rewarded. 
Like, you're not worthy of being the king. I never told you that, you know? And so Stefan kills him. In the novelization, Stefan murders the king to become king. There are already quite a few parallels to Shakespeare's Macbeth in this movie that really would have driven that home and would have made Stefan even more of a villain, I think, even though I think he already has that down pat. But, uh, you know, it makes me wonder if that was actually a scene that was originally in the movie and was cut because I do very vaguely recall the Maleficent runtime being revealed at an early stage and then ended up being very different when the movie ended up coming out. Like it was like 30 to 40 minutes shorter than they originally said it was going to be. So I do theorize that it's possible that a bunch of this movie was cut. Like maybe we did originally get that backstory of Maleficent's parents and that's why it's in the book. Maybe we do originally get that scene of Stefan killing the king and that's why it's in the book. The reason I say that is that I do think that sometimes people who write novelizations of movies are given like the entire script, you know, or they're able to see like a, some sort of advanced copy of the movie. And one of the reasons why I say that is that there is a novelization of the 2003 movie Daredevil with Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner. And I remember reading the novelization when I was in my teens and thinking like, wow, this is so different from the movie. Like there's a whole extra subplot here. There's a whole entire extra subplot, like, you know, a B plot in this movie, or I'm sorry, in this book that is not in the movie. So my assumption was that the novelist just took creative reign and decided to extend the story. But then a director's cut of Daredevil ended up coming out, being released on DVD, and that included that extra story. So most likely the novelist, that was the version of the movie that they were allowed to see. So that's why I say that it's possible that Elizabeth Rudnick saw an early version of the movie that included, you know, Maleficent's parents at the beginning and Stefan killing the king. And, you know, those were a couple of things that were cut. But that's just a theory. I don't have any way of proving that or backing that up. I've never read anything that solidified that or anything. But uh, Maleficent, you know, after she's betrayed, she creates a staff out of nature, out of basically wood. And so we get the staff. And then she finds the decrepit ruins of a castle. And this is meant to be, of course, the Forbidden Mountain. Then she rescues Diaval by turning him into a human and tells him, I need you to be my wings. So this is Diablo from Sleeping Beauty. So it's all coming together, you know, like Maleficent gets her scepter, her staff, uh, she gets the Forbidden Mountain. She gets uh, Diaval, you know, so it's all coming together. But, you know, what's interesting, though, is that in this version, she doesn't seemingly end up setting up camp at that decrepit castle that she found. So I'm not 100% sure what the point of that scene was. I guess it was just to be a nod to the Forbidden Mountain. And then that was it, <laughs> because that's not where she sets up camp. She sets up camp on a throne in the Moors, not in that you know, ruined, uh, remnants of a castle or whatever that was. So, uh, yeah, but anyway, ravens are incredibly, incredibly smart animals. So I 100% buy that in this universe, a raven could be turned into a human and still have a unique personality. 
how does he speak English though? Like, how does he know language that, you know, humans are, you know, I mean, the fairies speak English too, presumably, but you know what I mean? Like non-animals, like how does he speak these languages? Like, or language, like, I don't know if he's capable of speaking more than just English, but, uh, you know, that isn't explained, but I guess it's just because magic, <laughs> uh, but also how and why does he have a name? He apparently already had a name. So who named him? <laughs> Not important, I guess, but just stuff I felt like pointing out. Uh, but Diaval informs Maleficent that the king and queen have had a child. And this is more really phenomenal acting from Angelina here. When he tells her that, the pain and sadness and anger are so evident in her expression. And this is, of course, when she decides to crash the christening and curse the child. And again, like I said, I talked in my Sleeping Beauty episode about how fitting Maleficent's punishment was in that universe, but for very different reasons than it is here. But it is fitting here, too, because if you think about it, the reason that she would be angry with Aurora is basically misplaced anger, because that should have been her child, right? She fell in love with Stefan. She thought he was the one. He kissed her on her 16th birthday. You know, she fell in love with him, very deeply in love with him, and then he betrayed her. So there was a time when she most likely thought that, you know, we might have a child together someday. And then he goes and does have a child, but it's not with her. So I can imagine how painful that would be, right? So it makes sense that she would have anger toward this child because she is not her child, you know, and she feels like she should be. Which, of course, makes one aspect of the ending of the movie very ironic in a really great way. But, uh, yeah, the christening scene is so good. I mean, I want to avoid the temptation to compare it to the christening scene from Sleeping Beauty because both scenes are really good, in my opinion. Obviously, one has much more uh, of an iconic value to it and has a lot more power because of how long it's been around. So, you know, in that sense, they really can't be compared anyway. But this is really, really good. And I love how before you actually see Maleficent, you see like her shadow on the wall. It gives me chills every time I watch it because of how iconic Maleficent's silhouette is. I think I even mentioned in my Sleeping Beauty episode that Maleficent's appearance is so iconic that all you need is just to see like a silhouette, like a shadow, and you know who it is. And this movie just really played with that, you know, really made that a whole thing <laughs> because you see her shadow on the wall before you actually see her, and it's so effective. And she does such a phenomenal job here echoing Eleanor Audley while also not making it seem like a ripoff. You know, I think that she just does a brilliant, brilliant job here. And the queen, once again, just like she does in Sleeping Beauty, asks Maleficent, you're not offended? And I guess that it makes a little bit more sense here to ask her that because she probably knows exactly why Stefan didn't invite Maleficent. And this version doesn't put as much emphasis on the fact that all were invited. And even if it did, it would have meant all the kingdom. And in this version, Maleficent is not of that kingdom. She's from the Moors. Um, but it's still kind of a stupid question, though. I mean, I just don't understand why you would ask someone, 
Like if they say, you know, oh, well, I was really distressed at not being invited to this. And then somebody says, well, we didn't want you here. You weren't invited because we don't want you here. And then <laughs> you're like, are you offended? <laughs> It's like, yeah, of course they're offended. Like, I think that's just such a stupid question. But uh, one thing I will say, uh, and I think that this is one of the reasons why people, some people don't like this movie because they feel like it softened Maleficent up too much as a character, is that the curse is a little bit softer. Because in Sleeping Beauty, Maleficent curses Aurora to prick her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel you know, before the sun sets on her 16th birthday, and die. That's not what this Maleficent does. She doesn't say that she will prick her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel, you know, and die. She says that she will fall into a sleep like death. And she then proceeds to soften the curse herself. In Sleeping Beauty, it's the three good fairies who do this after Maleficent leaves. But here, it's that Stefan begs, and so she says, All right. The princess can be awakened from her sleep-like death, but only by love's first kiss. You know, or maybe it's true love's kiss. I'm not 100% sure which one that it is that she says. But, uh, you know, it's just really great because she knows exactly what she's doing here. She doesn't believe in such a thing. She doesn't believe that such a thing exists. So you can't really use this as evidence that she's not a villain because... She's not softening the curse in her mind. In her mind, she's rubbing it in. She is rubbing it in to Stefan's face that this is happening because he betrayed her. And the one thing that he promised her on her 16th birthday, mind you, which makes this curse even more appropriate, is the only hope that he has of his daughter being awakened. So Maleficent, in her mind... True love's kiss or love's first kiss, whatever it is that she calls it, it's not real. So there's no way it's going to work. It's not actually a failsafe. Like, it's not actually going to soften the curse. So in her mind, she's still condemning Aurora to die. And you could make the argument, well, she doesn't condemn her to die. She just condemns her to fall into a sleep like death. Well, that sounds like death to me. <laughs> you know, like, especially since she doesn't say a death like sleep. That would mean that sleep is what's actually happening, whereas it's being described as death-like. But if you're calling it a sleep-like death, it means that it's actually death, and it's being described as sleep-like. Does that make sense? Like, the emphasis there is on death. So it is, in some way, a death. But yeah, I mean, she is mocking Stefan here. She's not actually softening the curse, and I want to point that out, because this is an evil thing that she does. It doesn't really matter how you look at it. It doesn't matter that we know her reasons. It doesn't matter that we understand where this is coming from, and we empathize with her because she had her wings removed, and she was betrayed, you know, like, and had her heart broken. Like, I do empathize with her, and I do understand her. I'm not saying that she's not at all understandable or sympathetic or anything like that. I am not saying that. What I am saying is that this is still an evil thing to do, regardless of your reasons. Cursing an innocent child who had nothing to do with your heart being broken, you know, who had nothing to do with your wings being stolen, is evil, <laughs> you know? And it's also what makes Maleficent Maleficent, like I said, and it's still here. So, yeah. But another thing that I want to point out about the curse in this version is that 
Maleficent is the first one, not one of the three good fairies, to say that the princess will be, quote, beloved by all who meet her. And some people have pointed that out as a possible plot hole, because would she have found herself loving Aurora if she hadn't said that, right? And I can understand why people would point that out, but I do have a possible theory about that, or maybe not a theory, but just a possible explanation. I don't know that that was literal, like when she said, you know, beloved by all who meet her. I think that that was more so blessing Aurora with positive traits. Like Aurora is going to be radiant and just love the world around her and be excited and curious and, you know, kind and loving. But not everyone who meets her is necessarily going to like that, you know? So I think that that's really just, uh, maybe it could have been worded differently. Like I do kind of wish that maybe that line had been worded differently. It had been written differently because I do think that all she means there is that, you know, she's going to be kind and loving and uh, someone that the average person is going to enjoy being around, you know? It's not necessarily ensuring that everyone who meets her is going to love her, especially since Stefan doesn't, you know? Like, I don't get that impression at all. Stefan meets her later in the movie when she's 16 and just basically dismisses her. And I'll talk about that when I get there. But, um, you know, I, I yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that that's a plot hole. And Maleficent also does say before she leaves the christening, this curse will last until the end of time. No power on earth can change it. And that is important because that's going to come back into the story later on. So the narrator then tells us, Stefan shut himself behind the walls of his castle while his soldiers rode far and wide to hunt Maleficent down. Now see, that's the king I know. <laughs> now that sounds like a king. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't fully understand what the purpose of the three good fairies even is in this version. The whole reason for their characters in Sleeping Beauty is for them to protect Aurora and keep Aurora hidden from Maleficent. But that's not exactly necessary in this version because Maleficent immediately learns where they are and watches over Aurora. So, you know, there really is no purpose for her being in the cottage. <laughs> and they are also incredibly incompetent and seemingly not very bright. And I guess that that is in keeping with Sleeping Beauty, although I would say that they're probably a little bit more competent in Sleeping Beauty, at least. I mean, true, they don't know how to bake a cake. They don't know how to make a dress. But, you know, they seem like, especially uh, Flora, you know, they seem like they do at least kind of know what they're doing a little bit. But here, they just are incredibly incompetent. For example, they take Aurora back to the cottage as a baby. And they go inside the cottage and leave Aurora outside. Thistlewit almost immediately recognizes this, goes back outside to retrieve her, and says, There you are. Why are you always hiding? She wasn't hiding. She's a baby. <laughs> you left her outside. <laughs> so it's a miracle that Aurora makes it to 16. But to be honest, in this version at least, she probably only does because... Maleficent and Diaval were looking over her. Like, the fairies didn't seem to know what they were doing at all. But I do love how Aurora isn't scared of Maleficent, not even when she's a baby. Like, not even when Aurora is a baby. Because 
We see like very shortly after Maleficent learns where she is, she looks through the window at her and she roars at her. Like she growls at her and Aurora smiles. Like she doesn't scream. You know, she's not afraid of her. She doesn't cry. She smiles. And, you know, I talked a little bit in my Sleeping Beauty episode about how I think Aurora is kind of empathetic, you know, like she picks up on emotions. She understands people's intentions and things like that. And, you know, I think that even as a baby, it could be argued that deep down, she knows that Maleficent has a good heart, that she just has had a rough hand dealt her, you know, and she reacted to it impulsively. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, (laughs) Aurora doesn't know any of that. Aurora, as a baby, doesn't know about the curse. She doesn't know anything about any of that. I'm just saying that, like, you know, this is a fairy tale world where babies kind of picking up on human emotions is, and I think that even real life babies can do that to an extent, you know, uh, you know, I just don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that that's exactly why she's not afraid of her is that she doesn't sense danger, even though this is someone who cursed her. (laughs) Uh, but you know, one thing I do want to call attention to as well is that this is also the first scene in which she calls her beastie. Maleficent calls Aurora Beastie. She says, I hate you, Beastie. And I love how that affectionately kind of becomes her nickname for her. (laughs) Like, we'll see her call her that again later in a very affectionate way, a very loving way. And she will also call her that again in the sequel, in Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. So that just kind of becomes an ongoing thing, and I love that. But uh, one thing that I do want to call attention to as well is uh, Maleficent's outfits in this movie. I really, really love just about all of them. And I love that it's not the exact same one throughout the entirety of the movie like it is in Sleeping Beauty. As much as I love that iconic outfit, you know, it's not the same one in every single scene. (laughs) So, uh, you know, in this version. Uh, And one of the outfits looks like it has reptilian skin. And then later in a winter scene, her robes seem to be made partially out of fur. And I just find this weird because it's like, where did she get that? Like, I really hope that she didn't skin an animal for clothing because that seems kind of out of character. You know, she seems to have so much respect for nature and it just doesn't seem like she would kill an animal for fur or for like a reptile skin. So it's kind of inconsistent, but... It's also somewhat consistent with something that she says in the sequel, but that's a conversation for another time. Uh, But like I said, we see Diaval and Maleficent kind of looking over Aurora because Maleficent says, like, it's going to starve with those three looking after it. And Diaval at one point rocks Aurora to sleep. Like he uses his, and he's in bird form, he's in his raven form, and he uses like his feet to rock Aurora's cradle. And it's so precious. I love that scene so much. It's so adorable. And, you know, like I said, the three fairies are incompetent and seemingly not very intelligent. And similar to Sleeping Beauty, they do make for some good comedic relief, although so does Maleficent, interestingly enough. Like in this scene here is a really great example because the fairies are playing a game and Notgrass is being accused of cheating. And Maleficent makes it start raining inside the cottage, and so there's, like, rain falling on first her and then all three of them, and they think that they're doing it to each other, so they get arguing about it, 
And Maleficent is seen, you know, basically using magic with her fingers to make it happen. And she's having the time of her life doing this. And I love this because this is kind of like a callback to her inner child, right? We saw her as a child in the moors being playful, playing games with creatures, you know, and that's kind of what she's doing here. So, you know, I think that it's really cool. It's really touching to see her having fun, even though she's kind of like, I don't want to say wreaking havoc. That's kind of a harsh way to put it. It's a prank, you know, but yeah. But she looks at Diaval and she says, oh, come on, that's funny. <laughs> Another really, really great scene from Angelina. And uh, very shortly after that, she's using magic to kind of like tug at their hair and pull Notgrass's hat off. And that's really funny. But, you know, she, like I said, she does decide to look after Aurora herself because she knows that the fairies are not going to be able to do it because they're incompetent. And so she finds herself growing attached to her. And there's a scene when Maleficent goes up against a bunch of Stefan's men, a bunch of his soldiers, and, uh, you know, she uses her magic. And I really, really love this scene as well because... It's really, really exciting. I remember seeing this in the trailer and thinking that it looked really cool. And basically, Maleficent, like I said, she's using her magic, and she uses her magic by directing it with her hands. And so it looks like she's conducting a symphony as she's, like, raising all of these soldiers off the ground, having them slam into each other, having them whirl around in a whirlpool, basically, and then throwing them against trees, like... She looks like she's conducting a symphony. <laughs> it's really, really cool. I love that scene. But before she goes to battle with the soldiers, or whatever you want to call that, uh, she makes Aurora float. She uses magic to make Aurora float in, in midair, basically. And we'll see that again later in the movie when she does that, not only to Aurora again, but also to Philip. And I remember seeing that in the trailer and thinking, oh, that's her luring Aurora to the spindle. Right, Because like I said, I went into the movie expecting it to basically be a remake of Sleeping Beauty, but from Maleficent's perspective, and that's really not what it is. <laughs> so there's so much that happens that's completely, totally different, that's just completely retold, as I said. Uh, but yeah, that's what I thought when I first saw the trailer. Obviously, that's not what's happening. But, you know, I do love when Maleficent has the idea to bring Aurora to the Moors to see how she reacts to it, because she says... I wonder, and this is, of course, a reference to the Sleeping Beauty song, I Wonder, right? Aurora sings that song, I Wonder, in the meadow or the glen or whatever you want to call it in Sleeping Beauty before she sings Once Upon a Dream. So that's meant to be a reference to that. And when Maleficent does bring Aurora back to the moors, this is the scene that I referred to earlier that I think is just so beautiful. The colors and it just... I don't know how to explain it. There's just like this uh, sense of comfort that washes over me whenever I watch this scene. It's just so beautiful. And it's so obvious that Maleficent's heart is moved because Aurora sees the Moors as something beautiful, not something to be exploited. You know, she's thinking she's not like other humans. And she even says something very similar to that in Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, the sequel, right? Because Maleficent says something, you know, kind of... Uh, I don't know what the right word here is, like biased, discriminatory, I guess, against humans and Mistress of Evil. And Aurora says something like, well, I'm a human. And <laughs> Maleficent says something like, something I forgave you for a long time ago, you know, something to that effect. Because she knows that, you know, she's not like a lot of other humans are. 
You know, she loves nature. She wants to be one with nature. You know, she finds it beautiful. She finds it something to join rather than something to exploit. So eventually, Maleficent finds herself regretting the curse and she tries to revoke it. And I think it's worth noting that she doesn't try revoking the curse until Aurora is 16. So apparently never even tried prior to that. And I think that that's worth noting because people, like I said, love to watch this movie. Not everyone, but quite a few people that I've encountered love to watch this movie with the mindset that Maleficent is the pure-hearted hero of this story and Stefan is the villain. And I think that it is a lot more complex than that. It's a lot more complicated than that. And that's an example of what I'm talking about there, that why did it take her 16 years to decide to undo the curse? Why didn't she try sooner than that, right? But I think that part of the reason why this movie kind of does feel like Maleficent, you know, because I will give it to people that by the end, she is pretty much like fully redeemed and she's basically a hero now. Like, I think we're meant to see it that way. But it takes her time to get there. But this is only an hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes or so movie, you know, and it covers a wide span of time. The point that I'm getting at is that I do think that there was a lot in this movie that would have painted Maleficent as much more of a villain had this been like a TV series, you know, had this been like a 10 episode series. And we had seen a couple of episodes at least focused on Maleficent's time ruling over the Moors and cackling on her throne and laughing and throwing green energy up into the sky and stuff like that. Like, we see that in this movie, but it's brief. We don't see it for a very long period of time. But, I mean, even the the creatures of the Moors were afraid of her for a while. So, you know, clearly she wasn't very nice. <laughs> so, yeah, I just... So many reasons that I disagree that she's not even remotely a villain in this. I think she is. It's just that she's, first of all, she has understandable motivation. I think that her her reasons are much more empathetic than just not being invited to a party, even though, like I said in my Sleeping Beauty episode, I can definitely understand that as well. Uh, you know, there's that difference. And then also, after she enacts the curse, you know, she takes a different path. Eventually... Maleficent, you know, tries to revoke the curse, but she's not able to do it. And uh, we hear some of what Maleficent said when she casted the curse. This curse will last until the end of time. No power on earth can change it. And, uh, you know, so it's reminding us that Maleficent set it up so that it cannot be undone. But after she tries and fails to revoke the curse, she then tries to tell Aurora the truth. And she says, there is an evil in this world and I cannot keep you from it. And Aurora basically interrupts, though, and says that, you know, when she is older, she wants to live in the moors with Maleficent. And Maleficent says, well, there's no reason for you to wait until you're older. You could live with me here now. And I do love this twist here because in Sleeping Beauty, Aurora is going to tell her aunties, you know, the fairies, that she has fallen in love with a boy and wants to be with him, you know. But here... She's grown attached to Maleficent and loves the Moors and is planning on telling her aunties that she's going to live in the Moors. So, you know, I do love that twist. And uh, speaking of Philip, though, uh, we meet him shortly after this, as does Aurora. And I love how they're almost instantly attracted to each other. 
And that is definitely realistic. That does happen, <laughs> but are not necessarily instantly in love. In fact, we will eventually know for sure that they're not. But, uh, you know, one thing that I find really interesting is that I feel like in most cases, a movie that came out in 1959 versus a movie that came out in 2014 would take a character and make them far more interesting than they were in the original, right? You would think. And I feel like in most cases, that is true, right? Maleficent is a little bit more interesting. Well, I would say a lot more interesting. She's a lot more complex, uh, you know, a lot more complicated, a lot more nuanced. Aurora definitely has more depth to her. But one thing that I find interesting is that Philip is kind of the one exception to this. I think that he's far more interesting and far more of a likable character in Sleeping Beauty. You know, here, he really doesn't have much of a personality. He's kind of just like there. So they kind of did the reverse with him, which is definitely a little strange. But you know what? I'm kind of here for it because this isn't Philip's story. This isn't about him. I mean, Sleeping Beauty isn't about him either, but this especially because he's not the one who awakens Aurora up. So he really isn't the point. <laughs> and he does, even though he's recasted, he does play a bigger role in uh, the sequel, even though I still wouldn't consider him to be all that interesting of a character. So anyway, uh, Diaval excitedly tells Maleficent that Philip is the key to breaking the curse. And he says, true love's kiss, remember? It can break the spell. And Maleficent says, true love's kiss. Have you not worked it out yet? I cursed her that way because there is no such thing. So see, by her own admission, that's why she did that. That's why, again, I don't understand people who say that she's not evil in this version, that she was never a villain because she's the one who softened the curse herself. Like, no, she didn't. She did, but that wasn't her intention. She did not believe in true love's kiss. So she thought that she was just, you know, putting this fail safe in here just to mock Stefan because it wasn't actually going to do any good. Right. So anyway, speaking of Stefan, though, flashing back to him at the castle, uh, you know, he has many, many temper tantrums. Uh, he becomes cruel and uh, obsessed and he starts losing his mind. And uh, at one point, you know, because Maleficent has uh, protected the Moors by bringing up a wall of thorns, basically, around the Moors so that humans can't get in. And I'm sorry, but reasonable, 100% reasonable. We've already seen evidence that they're only going to destroy it, right? That they're there to conquer the Moors, steal its resources, uh, you know, destroy it, probably. Maleficent has done the right thing by protecting it. So, you know, she covers the uh, the border of the Moors with, uh, you know, again, these walls of thorns. And one of Stefan's soldiers says that, you know, we've been trying to do everything we can to get these walls down and we can't do it. They're indestructible. And Stefan just completely loses his cool and screams, you know, nothing is indestructible. Not the wall, not Maleficent, not even her curse. And this order, the order in which he lists these things off has always kind of bugged me because, like, you would think that Maleficent herself would kind of be seen as the ultimate enemy. You know, like, she's 
I mean, she's the one that's causing all of this, right? She built the wall. She enacted the curse. This is all her. But the way that he words it is that the first level of difficulty is the wall. Then the second level of difficulty is Maleficent. Let's go one step above that. And, uh, you know, let's say that not even her curse is indestructible. So you know what I'm saying? Like, I just kind of wish that it had been worded so that he said nothing is indestructible, not the wall, not Maleficent's curse, not even Maleficent herself. That would have made more sense. But like I said, we see Stefan losing his mind. He's going insane. He's talking to Maleficent's wings, saying things like, you mock me. I know what you're doing. At one point, someone tries to get him to go see his wife because she is ill and is running out of time. And Stefan refuses. He refuses to go see her. And he says, shh, can you not see we're having a conversation? And he's talking about him and the wings. So yeah, he's losing his mind. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, the three good fairies have an argument about when to bring Aurora back to the castle. Notgrass says, Stefan told us to take her back the day after her birthday. But Thistlewit is insisting that he said on her birthday. And Notgrass is very likely correct here, logically speaking. And this, along with what comes soon after, I think is meant to cover up the plot hole from Sleeping Beauty as well as kind of poke fun at it. But uh, Aurora, very shortly after that, finds out the truth about Maleficent because she goes back to the fairies, tells them that she plans on going to live in the moors with Maleficent, and we get an off-screen scene. Like, we don't see it, but it's implied that the fairies tell Aurora the truth about Maleficent. And so this is how Aurora finds out. But it's just kind of odd to me that she never mentioned Maleficent to them before now. It is really heartbreaking, though, when the realization washes over her. You know, like, she doesn't know at first that Maleficent is Maleficent. Because Maleficent has never told her her name. She looks at her, Aurora looks at her as her fairy godmother, and that's kind of what she calls her. So Aurora approaches Maleficent and asks her about it and realizes that she is the fairy who cursed her. And when that realization washes over her face, it's so heartbreaking. And Angelina Jolie also does such a phenomenal job here because you see the same, or not the same, but a very similar look on her face of heartbreak. You know, that she knows that Aurora learning this truth now is potentially going to ruin what they've built. But, you know, angry about having learned that this woman that she's trusted as a mother-like figure for a long while now is someone who cursed her as a baby. She flees back to the castle. She goes to the castle and she says, Father, it's me, Aurora. And like I said before, Stefan does not seem to have any love for her at all. So it just goes to show you that this is no longer what it's about. It's no longer necessarily about preventing the curse. This is personal. It's a vendetta. It's an obsession. All he really cares about is destroying Maleficent. You know, like Maleficent is basically his Moby Dick at this point. Uh, but yeah, I mean, not only that, though, but this calls back to what I was saying earlier about, uh, you know, the, uh, the fairies bringing her back on her birthday. Uh, because he says, like, you know, why did they bring you back today? I told those three idiots. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> there are very, very, very few scenes in this movie in which I am team Stefan because he's just pretty terrible. But uh, 
that's one of them because yeah, yeah. I mean, why would you, I talked about this in my sleeping beauty episode. Why would you bring her back the day that the curse is supposed to happen? That doesn't make any sense at all. I do love how in this version, Aurora doesn't need to be lured to a spindle. She is basically, quote, naturally lured to it because of the curse. And that's one thing that does kind of bother me about Sleeping Beauty uh, is that Maleficent, you know, basically physically lures Aurora to a spindle. And it's like, why did you need to physically be there to make sure that happened? Because wasn't that the point of the curse? Shouldn't the curse itself ensure that that happens? And in this version, yeah, it absolutely does. <laughs> so I do like that. But Maleficent finds Philip and uh, sees him on his horse. And he says, I'm looking for a girl. And Maleficent says, of course you are. <laughs> and I just love the way she says that. It's so funny. Uh, she uses her magic to put him to sleep and then says, I need a horse. <laughs> so, uh, you know... She ends up uh, using Philip's horse for him, for Philip, and then Diaval transforms into a horse for Maleficent to ride. And, you know, one of my favorite aspects of this movie has always been and always will be the dynamic between Maleficent and Diaval. I mean, I feel like this is driven home even further in the sequel because by that point they have known each other even longer. But, you know, you can tell that, like, the banter and the uh, the playful arguing is just that. It's playful. And that they actually do have a deep admiration and love for each other. So I love their relationship. Diaval tries to warn Maleficent that Stefan has set a trap for her, that he's waiting for her, and that it's therefore too dangerous. And she says, then don't come. It's not your fight. And Diaval says, huh, thank you very much. I need you, Diaval. I can't do this without you, Diaval. You know, like he's pretending that Maleficent is, uh, you know, showing appreciation and gratitude for him. And she then says, I can hear you. <laughs> it's just a really, really great scene. Like I said, I love the the playful banter between them. But uh, soon after that, this here is another scene in which I'm kind of team Stefan because, uh, you know, he realizes that Aurora has pricked her finger, you know, that she has gone to the basement where the uh, the broken spindles and spinning wheels were placed, and uh, she pricks her finger on a spindle of a spinning wheel, and uh, she falls into a death-like sleep or sleep-like death. And uh, he, uh, he says to the fairies, look at her, look at what you've done. And Notgrass says, she's only sleeping. And Stefan says, she's only sleeping, you say. She's only sleeping. She's only sleeping forever. <laughs> and yeah, he's not wrong. I mean, that was kind of a stupid thing to say. You know, like, yeah, this is a sleep-like death. She's not only sleeping. <laughs> you know, the curse even said before she softened it a little bit, uh, you know, that she would never awaken from this. So yeah, he's not wrong. And even if he did believe in true love, he has no reason to assume that Aurora has met anyone, that she has a true love. So that would be false hope. I really, really love when uh, the guard, like Maleficent distracts the guard by <laughs> having Philip float in the air near him. So the guard like looks in confusion, like, why is this boy floating in midair? 
<laughs> and she then releases the spell on Philip and he wakes up and then falls to the floor. <laughs> and it's so funny. You just see this look on his face like, what am I doing here? <laughs> Why am I here? <laughs> Why am I in midair? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I love when Disney is kind of self-referential and kind of makes fun of itself. I've talked about Enchanted and Disenchanted on this podcast before. I love those movies. And Frozen does it when Elsa tells Anna that she can't marry someone she just met. Maleficent does it here when Philip doesn't feel right about kissing Aurora. You know, he says like, but I don't feel right about this. I just met her. I barely know her. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, <laughs> you are 100% right. Tell that to your animated counterpart. <laughs> I love how they revised that. I love it. But guess what? That's only part one of the twist because it doesn't work. He kisses her and she doesn't wake up. So that's part two. But we get a part three as well. It gets even better because, like I said, Aurora doesn't wake up from Philip kissing her because, of course, she wouldn't. She pretty much just met him that day. She doesn't know anything about him. <laughs> uh, but Maleficent realizes that all has failed. There's no way of waking her up. And so she uh, comes out from where she was hiding. She approaches the bed where Aurora is sleeping. And she says, I will not ask your forgiveness because what I have done to you is unforgivable. I was so lost in hatred and revenge. Sweet Aurora, you stole what was left of my heart. And now I have lost you forever. I swear no harm will come to you as long as I live, and not a day shall pass that I don't miss your smile. Yeah, that's really heavy. That's emotional stuff, and Angelina Jolie delivers it so well. This honestly might be her christening scene, if that makes sense. Like, in Sleeping Beauty, Maleficent's best scene, just hands down the scene that you most remember her for, is the curse, right? The christening scene. This might be Angelina Jolie's Maleficent's christening scene. You know, this is the scene that I really remember her for. And uh, yeah, it's just really, really beautiful. It's very emotional. Always gets me emotional. Uh, but first of all, you know, there are a couple of things to, to note here. First of all, she says, I will not ask your forgiveness because what I have done to you is unforgivable. So again, by her own admission, what she did was evil. But secondly, you know, she she promises that no harm will come to her as long as she lives. And it's like, well, after you're dead, I guess Aurora is on her own. <laughs> All bets are off after that. I can't promise anything. Because I'm assuming that fairies are not immortal. That they can be killed or do eventually die of natural causes. So, yeah. But uh, Maleficent kisses Aurora on the forehead and then starts to walk away and Aurora wakes up and she says hello godmother and Maleficent turns around realizes that she's woken up you can kind of see the surprise on her face and she says hello beastie so we get that coming back in an affectionate way and yeah the water works here <laughs> it's just such a beautiful scene I love it I love how this is basically history being rewritten I mean the fact that it is Maleficent not Philip who wakes Aurora up. I just loved that twist. It was not something that I ever would have expected to see coming prior to seeing the movie, you know? And it works so well in this universe. I just love it. I love it so much. But 
I also love how ironic it is because, like I said, one of the reasons why Maleficent curses Aurora to begin with, it's never explicitly stated, but I think that it is heavily implied. It's in the subtext, you know, is that she is jealous because she was in love with Stefan and Stefan has now had a child with somebody else, you know? So she's heartbroken and jealous and feels like Aurora should have been her daughter. And now she kind of is. <laughs> so I just, I, I love that. I also do really love the twist that it's Diaval who turns into a dragon, not Maleficent. And when I first saw the movie, that completely took me by surprise. And I don't know why it did, because I should have seen it coming from a mile away. Because, of course, he's a shapeshifter, sort of. You know, like, I don't know. The thing about him is I don't know if he's actually like a shapeshifter or if it's just Maleficent using her magic to make him change. I think it's probably the latter. But the fact that he's even capable of doing it, I guess, would make him a shapeshifter. I don't know. doesn't matter. But anyway, uh, Maleficent is, uh, you know, able to save herself because Stefan, you know, battles with her and almost stabs her. But like I said, she's able to save herself by getting her wings back. I'm not 100% sure what happens here. Like, I don't know how this works. It doesn't explain this. Like, she is uh, about to get stabbed, but the wings make their way out of the glass case where Stefan was keeping them and basically find their way to her and reattach themselves to her back. And I'm not really sure how that happened. <laughs> There's no explanation offered. So just roll with it, I guess. But I do love how it's revealed because Stefan goes charging at her with a sword and the look on her face is pained and surprised. So at first you think that it could be that he has stabbed her, you know, especially given that that would kind of mirror how she died in Sleeping Beauty, right? That Philip threw a sword at her chest. But nope, that's not what happened. She looks pained and surprised because her wings are reattaching themselves. But I do have to say, it's Stefan's own fault that he's dead. Maleficent really didn't kill him. She gave him a chance. She could have killed him. I alluded to this earlier. You know, she decides not to. She has him cornered. She could kill him, but her eyes soften and she says it's over and starts to walk away, but he won't give up. And so it's really his own fault that he's dead. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of Gaston's death in Beauty and the Beast because something similar happens. The Beast has it in him, has the anger in him necessary to kill Gaston, but chooses not to because he doesn't want to be a beast, right? He wants to be... Uh, he, he wants to hold on to the humanity that's in him. And so he chooses not to kill Gaston. He spares him. But then Gaston is like, nope, you showed me some kindness. Well, too bad. Like, <laughs> I'm still going to try to kill you. And so it's Gaston's own fault that he ends up dead, just like it's Stefan's own fault here. Uh, but, you know, after Stefan dies, uh, you know, Maleficent does look really heartbroken. And I love that little bit because she did once love this man probably still does to an extent. So it makes sense that this just wouldn't be completely easy for her, you know, that it would be heartbreaking to watch him die. But the morning after, we get a beautiful, gorgeous sunrise signaling a new beginning. And I love this because it is kind of meant to represent, I think, Aurora helping to usher in that new era because what does Aurora mean, right? It means dawn. It means sunrise. So, uh, you know, the fact that we literally physically see a sunrise, I think is meant to represent Aurora ushering in a new era, 
She is soon after that, in fact, made Queen of the Moors, although I don't quite get that because I thought that, like I said, uh, the Moors, quote, needed neither king nor queen, but trusted in one another. So I'm kind of confused as to what the message there is supposed to be, <laughs> because I thought that the whole point of telling us that the Moors didn't need a king or queen was to say that, you know, they don't need government. You know, they don't need monarchy. Like, they're peaceful. That's a little bit confusing. But at the same time, you know, we get a little bit of a look into what being Queen of the Moors looks like for Aurora in the sequel. And it's not that she, like, rules and, uh, you know, and is weighted on hand and foot and gives orders and things like that. Like, that's not really what we see. She's more so just like a guardian and kind of just represents the Moors. So I guess maybe the Moors' idea of a queen isn't the same idea as that would be for the human kingdom. But anyway, I digress. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, you know, one thing that is confusing, though, is that Mistress of Evil, the sequel, will show us that this actually did very little to unite the Moors with the human kingdom. But I guess that maybe the whole point of this was just to unite the Moors with that particular kingdom, not just humanity in general, but that particular kingdom. So, uh, yeah. But anyway, the narrator then drops one final reveal. So you see, she says, the story is not quite as you were told, and I should know, for I was the one they called Sleeping Beauty. So Aurora is the narrator. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I definitely didn't see that coming when I first saw it. Uh, and then she closes by saying, uh, in the end, my kingdom was united not by a hero or a villain, as legend had predicted, but by one who was both hero and villain, and her name was Maleficent. So, uh, you know, that's another reason why I am a naysayer to the people who think that Maleficent was not at all a villain in this movie, because the movie itself says that she was. <laughs> so, you know, she was both, and you can be both. You know, I think that there are so many people who want to see everything in black and white. They don't want to see grays, especially not in a Disney movie. And I don't understand that because Beauty and the Beast is another example. You have Gaston, who is the primary antagonist of that movie. He's the primary villain. But the Beast starts off as just as much of an antagonist, if not more so. He's probably an even bigger villain than Gaston is at first. But he gets redeemed. He changes. That's the only difference. And it's really something similar here. You know, Maleficent does something absolutely horrendously evil, but then regrets it and changes. But she still did do something evil. She still was a villain at one point. So I don't know why that's forgotten or ignored, but it is. But then the end credits give us Lana Del Rey's version of Once Upon a Dream, which is absolutely beautiful. It sounds like a dark lullaby. It's gorgeous. Uh... But one thing I want to do is I want to kind of point out some of the differences between Sleeping Beauty and Maleficent, because like I said, these two movies cannot coexist in the same universe, and they don't. And there are various reasons for that. One of them is that Maleficent's appearance is different. You know, she doesn't have like this uh, green toned skin, you know? In fact, if anything, she's very, very, very white. She's very pale, like almost like a vampire sort of pale. So she looks very different. Uh, the three good fairies, like I've already mentioned, their names were changed for some reason. And 
Even though it's not stated anywhere in the script, Maleficent's raven's name is Diablo in Sleeping Beauty. Here it is Diaval, and he can also change form. The curse is obviously different. I've already talked about that. And Maleficent doesn't spend 16 years frustrated not knowing where Aurora is. She immediately learns and forms a bond with Aurora. The three fairies also play a much less important role and never call Aurora Briar Rose like they do in Sleeping Beauty, because in Sleeping Beauty they kind of give her an alias, they change her name. Aurora returns home only to her father, not Stefan and Leah, because in this version, Leah, or whatever her name is here, <laughs> has passed away by that point. And Maleficent retrieves Philip not to imprison him, but in the small hopes that he can awaken Aurora. Philip's father's name is John, not Hubert. Philip kisses Aurora, but does not awaken her. Instead, it is Maleficent who awakens her. And then finally, Maleficent isn't killed in this version. In fact, it is Stefan who dies. And there are probably tons more, but those are just some of the key ones that I, uh, you know, I'm honing in on. So how would I rate this movie? How would I rate Maleficent? Well, like I said, I know that there were some people who did not like the spin that was put on this story, and... I guess a very small part of me does get it, because after all, her name is Maleficent. Her name literally means evil. <laughs> uh, and she does do something very monstrously evil in this movie, but she doesn't stay that way, and she doesn't start off that way either. Uh, she is, I suppose, supposed to be evil incarnate in Sleeping Beauty, and she definitely isn't here. So I guess I sort of get it, but at the same time, I see it as a different version. I see it as a retelling. And as someone who always loved Maleficent and went into this movie worrying about her dying at the end, <laughs> you know, that doesn't happen. So I kind of love that. I really love that. She is uh, much more morally gray and complex here, but I really love that. And I, like I said, I love seeing a different spin put on both the character and the story. And I also am a huge sucker for redemption arcs. I love redemption stories. And... Like I said, I seriously love the twist that it's Maleficent who awakens Aurora. And, uh, you know, I just, as someone who already felt a connection to this character before even seeing this movie, you know, I think that I appreciated her even more after seeing this. And, uh, you know, but like I said, the direction was definitely a surprise to me because I, for example, remember Angelina Jolie saying in an interview that what she hoped people would take away from this movie is that they would watch Sleeping Beauty differently and understand Maleficent better, but no, that doesn't happen for me. I don't go back and rewatch Sleeping Beauty and, you know, have like a uh like a more nuanced view of Maleficent really. Like I don't empathize with her the way that I do in this movie, not to that large extent, you know, because they are two very different characters from very different universes. And uh, the tone of this movie is very, very different from Sleeping Beauty. Very different. And I'm not going to lie. I would love, I would absolutely eat it up. I would love an actual like live action adaptation of Sleeping Beauty. If Disney did a live action adaptation of Sleeping Beauty that was more faithful to the animated movie, I would love that. I would eat that right up. I would love it. But I do love what this did, though. 
I do love this twist and this spin on the character, and I really, really loved it, and I thought that Angelina Jolie did a brilliant, brilliant job with this character, and, you know, I give this movie a strong 9 out of 10. And, you know, it loses only one point for me because, you know, like, for example, changing Philip's father's name to John from Hubert and changing the fairies from, you know, Flora, Fauna, and Merriweather to Notgrass, Thistlewit, and Flittle. Like, I don't understand what the point of that was. Aside from that, I love this movie. One of my favorites for sure. So definitely solid nine out of 10. So if you would like to reach out to me, I would absolutely love that. I would love to hear from you. Uh, you know, whether it be suggestions, movies that you would like me to cover in the future, you know, or books or, you know, anything like that, any kind of Disney media that you would like me to cover in the future, throw your suggestions my way. And there are a number of ways that you can reach out to me. You can email disneyshpodcast at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash disneyshpodcast. You can follow me on Instagram, which is Disney's Podcast, and you can also follow my personal Instagram page, which is The Lost Passenger. Please be sure, if you are liking what you've heard so far and you want more, to hit that subscribe button on whatever you're using to listen to this podcast, because that way you'll never miss a new episode. And speaking of new episodes, you've probably already guessed what's coming next. <laughs> uh, that's right, we're staying on this train until it reaches the station, so we're covering the sequel next, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. Until next time, though, this has been Disney asking you all to arise and stand with me.